did you grow up in cultural Christianity? If you did, do you think this background helped you love Jesus more? Or did this drive you away from him? What would your neighbors think about cultural Christianity? As people debate whether we even live in a Christian culture anymore, how do these public moral tropes and gospel reflections influence our stories, whether they're made by Christians or non-Christians? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the very Christian podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory. And me, Steve Urbanette, the publisher of Lorehaven, not just a cultural Christian, I'm also the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. I'm Zachary Russell, and I grew up in the South, so you can already guess the kind of environment I grew up in spiritually. But this is episode 160, How Does Cultural Christianity Hurt But Also Help Our Stories? Zach approached me with this idea, even though we did not even pitch it at the end of our last episode, but that is 100% allowed because once he said cultural Christianity and cited some examples, I got to thinking as well and wondering, okay, yeah, there's lots of pundits out there, uh, some people who maybe have a more negative view of what they call cultural Christianity, uh, who would actually say that there's very little that's good about Christian influence in society, a public reflection of Christian morality or an idea, a restaurant that closes on Sundays or a place that won't serve alcohol here or there. Uh, What does that really mean, though? We're going to get to that in just a moment. The joke I've heard is that cultural Christianity is the LaCroix of biblical faith. But hey, I like LaCroix. (laughs) Okay, I can't have sodas. And uh, I'd rather have that than just plain old water. And I'd much rather have that than something really bad for me. So I'm going to start a little bit with my conclusion, but we'll get into how this affects both us personally, the cultural around us, but more importantly, how this influences stories and how cultural Christianity can make stories a lot better. You're going to have to explain the LaCroix reference for those who don't have that particular (laughs) uh, beverage. Uh, Basically, I think the joke is that LaCroix is a lightly flavored soda water, very lightly flavored with raspberry or orange or something like that. And the joke is that LaCroix is like a drink uh, that you download the flavor uh, from the internet, or LaCroix is the drink where if you're drinking basically soda water and someone yells the word orange from the next room, (laughs) that's what LaCroix is. So in this case, it actually fits really well. Uh, If you're drinking water and someone yells uh, Jesus from the next room, are you suddenly uh, getting a hint of cultural Christianity uh, in your beverage? And yeah, how does this affect stories? So we'll talk a little bit about the real world and what kinds of cultural Christianity you've seen whether you liked it, whether you didn't like it, and of course, what we mean by that. And then we're going to apply that to fiction as well. We have some cultural Christian examples from uh, popular franchises to bring up. And I think we'll see that uh, actually uh, this has been an altogether good thing for society, uh, even though there's lots of ways that this can go awry. How about a more than culturally Christian sponsor, returning champion Enclave Publishing? Their new book, Radiant, is coming out in just a week or so. This is the second book in the Color Theory series by Ashley Bustamante, Secrets Come in Every Shade. After the introduction of yellow magic in a society accustomed to only red and blue magic, the world inside the barrier has become more complicated than anyone imagined. Ava, Elm, and the former students of PRISM navigate life in hiding. They face discord, secrets, betrayal, and danger that looms ever closer as the benefactors narrow in on their hideaway. Ava is determined to keep everyone protected, even at the cost of her own safety. She explores dangerous aspects of her new mentalist abilities against Elm's dire warnings. Tensions escalate when a new visitor arrives, claiming to know a way out of the barrier. 
While this may be the only way to escape the benefactors, what awaits them on the outside? Will they gain allies or make an entirely new set of enemies? That's Radiant, a book two of the Color Theory series from Ashley Bustamante from Enclave Publishing. Link in the show notes for episode 160 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, all this talk about color uh, makes me think of the Green Lantern Corps. I'm not sure how all those different colors there match up with the uh, colors of the emotional spectrum. But I would say, forcing the comparison, that that is another little example of cultural Christianity uh, in the superhero realm. It's kind of two or three degrees removed, but I think we forget that a lot of those stories are just a few degrees removed from cultural Christianity. If you got rid of that, if you thought it doesn't matter, uh, then there's a lot of good stuff in even secular storytelling that you're also going to give up. Uh, You are chopping out a foundation you don't even know uh, because you think it looks rotten uh, from a few layers up. Let's go to chapter one and define our terms. Uh, you propose the topic, so I'm going to pitch this to you. What do you personally, Zach, mean or think of? Like, what are some of the images that come to mind when you hear the phrase cultural Christianity? Yeah, so we're, we're going to talk about sort of the positive and the negative aspects of this, but I'm going to try to give a neutral definition at first that I think most people would agree with. Cultural Christianity is the external adherence to the Christian faith and values. Or you could say, Cultural Christianity is the civic application of Christian values and norms. Okay. So if someone is, uh, if a Southern lady uh, spills her iced tea and then says, Lord of mercy, is that cultural Christianity? <laughs> Whether or not she's a Christian, let's say she's not actually yeah. a Christian, not even a local church member, but her grandma always says, Lord of mercy. So she says, Lord of mercy. Yeah. So th- let me give actually a, a really specific example that that Naomi came up with just before we started recording. And I thought was excellent, which is we live here in the South. She's not from the South. And before we got married, she lived in Japan. And so she's been in a lot of cultures and she's really seen the influence of cultural Christianity on Southern culture from this kind of outsider perspective. And the thing that impressed her right away was the norm in the South of chivalry. When she lived in Japan, she said no one would ever open the door for her. And one time when she was walking up a, from a subway platform up to the street, she had to walk up two flights of stairs carrying this really heavy suitcase. She said about 25 guys walked past her. She was obviously struggling with it. It was way too big for her. They didn't have an elevator and no one offered to help her. She's like in the South, if that happened, any guy that walked by would offer to help. I'm like, oh yeah. Anytime I'm on an airplane, I'm really tall. And sometimes you're on those airplanes where it's like a really tall cabin and inevitably there'll be someone really short next to me. And, uh, and in particular, if it's a shorter woman that can't quite reach and may not have the, the upper body strength and has to like stand on a chair, I'll just say, Hey, can I get that for you? And you know, on airplanes, people are kind of squirrely cause you're not supposed to let anyone handle your suitcase because of TSA rules or whatever. But the point is like, that's just such a natural impulse in the South because of cultural Christianity and in other cultures uh, that don't have a very large Christian influence. I mean, Japan is 0.5% Christian at most. That value of honoring women, respecting women is very different. <laughs> I'll just say. So that's one of those Christian norms because, you know, one thing Naomi is always telling our girls is Jesus is the one that truly liberated women. You know, we, we hear so much in the West about, feminism and women's liberation. But when you really look at the, the ideal example of that, it's how Jesus treated and valued women. There's nothing like that 
from Western secularism, and there's nothing like that from other cultures. So it's something entirely different than what we get politically. But the point is that sort of love and respect for women is very infused into a culturally Christian atmosphere. So the whole idea of, for example, a man opening a door for a woman as a sign of courtesy, and if done right, it's a sign of respect, not uh, patronizing her or anything like that. Uh, that would be in your in your mind then derived from cultural Christianity. This norm that's practiced by all kinds of people, all kinds of different religions and denominations, who are, they're not Christians, but they're adopting this politeness that is derived from a Christian worldview. So it goes like from the church. Uh, this idea of you know how men should help women, and this uh, inherited medieval idea of chivalry in the best possible sense, uh, and then it trickles down into the idea of men opening doors for women. Uh, which doesn't happen in every culture. Uh, I want to circle back to that, by the way, in chapter two, uh, because if uh, there's, there's a good example there, because there's a lot of people now who think, well, if you open a door for a woman, then that's rude, or you're acting like you're stronger right. than her. It, it can be abused, or people can think that it's abused and then throw the baby out with the bathwater, to coin a phrase. When I hear cultural Christianity, uh, the thing that comes to mind is the sign on a restaurant, a certain uh, chicken fast food franchise in the United States and elsewhere. It says, closed on Sundays. That's cultural Christianity. It's not a law. Uh, it's not like what we used to call a blue law uh, where you could not sell alcohol on Sundays because reasons. It's a restaurant or a repair shop or some other business. Uh, there's a few chains around here in the U.S. that voluntarily close on Sundays, whether it's a Christian bookstore. Uh, Hobby Lobby is a big uh, arts and craft retail chain. Uh, they close on Sundays as well. So it's like them and Chick-fil-A. And they're very successful anyway. Uh, there's no law that says everybody has to close on Sundays. And for all we know, they're not closing because, oh, darn, you know, those, those legalistic pastor back home is making me close on Sunday, but I really don't want to. Uh, who's going to oppose that kind of cultural Christianity? Can it go wrong? Yes. Is it a good thing? Yes. Uh, any other cultural Christian things that you can think of in the real world that might help us uh, get a handle on what it means? Yeah, let's take the neutral space, if you will, of a restaurant or a coffee shop. So there's a lot of choices a restaurant owner has to make besides whether to be open on Sunday. Those choices might be, what do you put on the cup? Do you, do you put an inspirational quote? Do you put a some political theory? Or do you put a Bible verse? Live, laugh, love. <laughs> right. Yeah, something kind of bland or something directly from the Bible. So In-N-Out Burgers, they put John 3.16 on the bottom of every cup. They're a Christian-owned company. Uh, now let's talk about what do you put on the walls? What do you decorate it with? Some generic, you know, target <laughs> art, art from, you know, the local area, maybe like there's a restaurant near me where they do that. Do you put political symbols up? Uh, a lot of restaurants here in Austin have the pride flag and other sort of progressive icons. You go out into the rural areas, I'm sure they've got Trump signs everywhere. Uh, but what about Bible verses on the walls? What about religious paintings? And then what do you play? On the speakers, you play instrumental music, pop music, country music, gospel music, praise and worship music, a lot of choices there. And so the, the culturally Christian atmosphere is going to have all those Christian symbols, Christian music, and sort of Christian cultural goods on display unapologetically. So that's where we're moving from the real world to what we would call culture, uh, where stories are a part of culture. And that's why we're talking about it on this Lorehaven podcast, because we explore everything at the intersection of biblical truth and fantastic imagination. Uh, wall decor is not necessarily fantastical, but now you're talking about how cultural Christianity influences people's decisions for how they decorate, uh, how they imagine. 
uh, how they are creative in God's image, whether or not they recognize God. Again, we're talking about voluntary actions here, uh, not somebody who's been made to put something right. up because we're living under a dastardly theocracy. Uh, it's people who want to do this, uh, either because they feel it's a very nice thing and, you know, my grandma would have done it, so so shall I, uh, or because they're actual Christians uh, who believe in Jesus and are members of a local church and they want to reflect their real faith uh, in their real world. So. That's cultural Christianity. I mentioned there's lots of other things that people can think of. Yeah, the Bible verses on the cups, uh, retail decisions. Um, talking a little bit more in the governmental space, yeah, you know, Ten Commandments in a courthouse wall would be a sign of cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. Pull out your quarter if you live in America, and they'll say, in God we trust on there. Uh, you've got some cultural Christianity literally right there on the money. Uh, which, by the way, new conspiracy theory just dropped. Uh, that's why we're moving away from a cashless society. It's another <laughs> way to be atheist rebels and all edgelord. Yeah, I, I just I just made that up. There are other reasons for that. Anyway, <laughs> we're not economical truth or fantastical truth. So that's cultural Christianity. Uh, there's a there's a flag. Have you ever seen the Christian flag? Uh, yes. Some denominations like to fly that, oddly enough, alongside the American flag. Uh, both flags are made up, but I frankly prefer the American flag. It has a little bit more of a pass to it. I think flags are for nations and the gospel is for the local church as a representative of the capital C church. So I'm not a big fan of the Christian flag, but I'm not a hater either, but that can be cultural Christianity as represented in the church. Uh, there's culturally Christian catchphrases like the, uh, one I mentioned, if someone spills the iced tea. Uh, if someone says, bless your heart, well, bless is a biblical concept. That person may have not been to church since 1975, and yet they're going to repeat some Christian tropes. Uh, the ideas of sexual morality, a lot of that was and or is cultural Christianity, or at least Judeo-Christian morality. So there's real-world versions of cultural Christianity, and then there's creative cultural versions of cultural Christianity. Yeah. We'll get into some of those in just a moment. Yeah, and some of those were written in our laws. Like you said, you mentioned blue laws where alcohol couldn't be sold until a certain time on Sundays. And and for the longest time, all businesses had to be closed on Sunday. So again, it's that sort of external reinforcement of Christian norms and values. You know, divorce laws used to be very different. No-fault divorce was a huge shift in our culture. Even things like um, cross-dressing, okay, or or just hairstyles. Uh, maybe not laws, but very much a cultural norm. Uh, I think the Beatles really changed that, uh, where long hair became very common and clothing styles is another thing. Uh, you know, back to haircuts for a second. I just remembered this. My uh, a college pastor I had, he went to a very conservative Christian school growing up. And I still remember this. They had a phrase that they would say every week was, if there's hair on your ears, there's sin in your heart. And literally they would go each week at chapel and check the hair length of all the boys. And if there was hair covering their ears, like if it was starting to get a little too long and they look, you know, starting to look too much, too feminine there, they'd send them to the haircut right then. Wow. See, that's what people think of. I think when they think about cultural (laughs) norms like that, they immediately start thinking about the ways that they have been weaponized for legalism. And so we'll talk about that in chapter two. It does happen. We're going to admit it. Uh, even if we believe that cultural Christianity is still uh, an almost unmitigated good. Uh, We'll also apply that to stories such as our next sponsor. It's author Herman P. Hunter, new sponsor here on Fantastical Truth, with a novel called The Wizard's Stone. A young apprentice is sent on a perilous mission 
To protect him, a band of mercenaries is hired and paid a fortune in gold. Their mission? To travel over sea and land to deliver a secret artifact to a king halfway across the world. A stone wrapped, sealed, and warded with protective magic runes. And from the outset, they are hunted. By day, they are hounded by the followers of a dark and secretive sect. By night, an ancient evil stalks them in the darkness. Author Herman P. Hunter presents The Wizard's Stone. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Store, Audible, Spotify, Smashwords, and more. You can get those purchased links in the show notes for this episode or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Those act, a dark and secretive sect, pursues these band of mercenaries in the last sponsor. And we also see some evil in the world that people will associate with what they call cultural Christianity. So let's apply that specifically to stories. And I'm curious what examples you were thinking of. How does cultural Christianity hurt the fantastical stories that we see? Uh, I guess let's start with the non-Christian stories. Like, is there some negative effects that we see? Or is it more of the Christian stories where a lot of these uh, popular level tropes uh, tend to weaken our faith from the inside? Yeah, so I, I would say a, a really clear negative example of cultural Christianity in a story is the movie Contact, by based on the book by Carl Sagan. There's a number of culturally Christian characters in this story. In fact, almost all the Christian characters are portrayed negatively. Um, I think overall, the, the story actually indirectly has a positive angle on faith because the main character, Ellie Arroway, has an experience she can't totally prove. And that sort of upends her whole basis for atheism because she can't prove that God exists or the Bible is true or whatever. But having said that, you know, first there's her love interest, Palmer Joss, who's a man of the cloth without the cloth in his own words. Then there is the uh, political Christian activist. He just cares about the political ramifications of this alien contact and how Christians are going to gain or lose power from it. Then, of course, there's the Christian terrorist that's in it. And then just a lot of, Christian protesters, for some reason, <laughs> protesting a, a telescope. I never really understood that part of it, but I, I do know that in the 80s and 90s, there was a concerted Christian effort against SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. There was a lot of influence in Congress that like, hey, why are we spending all this money trying to find aliens? Is there any point to that? That's just a waste of money. There's no aliens out there. God didn't make aliens because we would have heard about them in the Bible if he did. And uh, this is not the alien episode, I promise. But all of those portrayals of of cultural Christianity were, you know, in, in some ways they're accurate, right? I I think we've <laughs> we've probably all met people like these people. We've either met the hedonistic Christians, we've met the legalistic, mean, angry Christians. I, I don't think Christian suicide bombers is really a, a thing so much, but there have been, you know, attacks on abortion clinics, and there's been abortionists that have been murdered and. So th then you look at that and you're like, okay, was Christianity really the motivating force behind those things? Well, not really, because you can't really point to where Jesus said to do those things. <laughs> but this is sort of the danger of cultural Christianity that people can attach to those external norms and values of Christianity and think it's all about the external actions. So th this is the, you know, Jesus talks about the Pharisees being a whitewashed tomb or a cup you clean on the outside, but not on the inside. That's where cultural Christianity can be dangerous. It can give you a false sense of security. I mean, in the eternal sense, of course, but also a false sense of security against the sin that's in your own heart. That, you know, you think if you surround yourself with enough Christian things, Christian music, 
Bible verses, Christian artifacts, Christian t-shirts, Christian norms, hairstyles, dress styles, that this is what will keep you safe. Problem is sin lives in every human. It's these, these external things ultimately will fail to keep us away from sin. It's only the Holy Spirit within us that will keep us away. But, you know, the deeper question is, and we'll get into this more in chapter three, but isn't there some good to these external things? But right now we're going to talk about sort of the danger of these things. Stephen, I, I grew up a cultural Christian. So I, I grew up in the South. I'm surrounded by country music. A lot of country music. I hated country music, but a lot of country music is very culturally Christian. And it's it's basically it's basically Christian music. Yeah. I mean, there's so much overlap, right? I mean, if you sing about God, Merca, and Apple Pie, I yeah. mean, you may as well just go to heaven right now. You know, I, actually, more than country music, what influenced me was a Bette Midler song, believe it or not, because my mom loved this song, played it all the time. It was... Um, it's that line, God is watching over us or God is watching us. And it's oh, yeah. sort of Soft her Earth Day song. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, these these songs and these things that just sort of reference God in the abstract, you know, not necessarily a biblical portrayal of God, but just a cultural, secular, Western portrayal of God, more of a deistic God is kind of what you get. I always think back to this moment, early high school, I had to fill out some application. I, I don't remember what. My grandfather was helping me with it. It might have been a job application or something. And there was this box that said, what is your religion? And I'm like, I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Buddhist. And then uh, I guess I'm a Christian. And I asked my grandfather, like, what do I put here? I I think because you could just write in. Maybe it wasn't check boxes. And he said, just put Presbyterian. (laughs) And I was like, okay, yeah. And that that really did describe me growing up. I was a Presbyterian. That's just we went to a Presbyterian church and I, but I didn't have any idea what that meant. And that, that was the moment I realized, okay, I'm identifying as a Presbyterian, but I have no idea what that means. Why am I that and not a Methodist or a Baptist or something else? I know I'm not a Catholic because that's very different than a Protestant, but I didn't know what it meant to be a Presbyterian. It, it's sort of like I was going to a swimming pool every week without ever getting in the water. And I'm sorry, that's a really terrible analogy between Presbyterian Baptist. Okay, we're not going to go there. But, you know, again, this is a very common occurrence in Texas. It's people that go to church and then don't talk about church. (laughs) That's just a slot you fill in on the calendar. When I got to college, I was very much this way. I started to walk with the Lord, but it was very superficial. I'd go to church, but I'd honestly fall asleep in church. And that was because I was playing video games all night. I wasn't walking as a Christian and there were many other problems with my life. You know, that first semester or that second semester then of college is when God really turned me around and I started actually walking with the Lord and reading my Bible and praying and and talking about my faith. And I started to get really bothered after that by cultural Christianity because I'm like that was me. That that was and I saw it so much around me in in Texas culture. So, I think when this gets into stories, it portrays Christians in a bad light. Again, you get this superficiality and you get this either hedonistic or legalistic versions of Christians. Well, you mentioned uh, the film and book uh, Contact by Carl Sagan. Uh, Definitely not uh, a cultural Christian, at least certainly not when he was most popular. Uh, A story that popularized this negative version of cultural Christianity, you know, almost portraying them as, uh, as villains in a sense. Uh, did he base that on stuff he was actually seeing or did he just kind of want it to be that way? Uh, I don't know. Uh, certainly some Christians have behaved uh, badly and as such, some fiction should uh, show that it's real life. 
uh, cultural Christians can behave very badly. Uh, so that's a really bad result of cultural Christianity. It weakens the faith. It makes you a bad engager of the world. Uh, you're giving support now to some atheist to write a, uh, a science fiction novel that portrays you as the ignoramuses or the villains. Uh, but I think the worst problem with cultural Christianity, you mentioned, Zach, is that it can reassure people who are not Christians that they are Christian, that they're exactly. safe. Uh, yeah. Back then, you would not have made it at the rapture, buddy. Uh, you would have nope. been left behind along with all <laughs> the folks at the beginning of, by the way, some people would say the culturally Christian left behind series. No, it was a Christian series that completely critiqued cultural Christianity. Yes. Because yes. if there's a rapture event, whether or not you believe in that, assume it's true for the sake of fiction. If Christ snatches away all true believers and the cultural Christians who aren't actually saved get left behind, now that is a binary. Uh, you are in or you are out. And if you're out, in their view, you get a second chance. I think cultural Christians have a chance after chance after chance. But I love the line from the Inventors and Odyssey episode where a Christian character has to break up with a non-Christian as she tells him, you have been exposed to so much Christianity that you become immune to its influence. Now, this was not cultural Christianity uh, with the gang at Wits End. It was actual Christianity. But even if you are a non-believer living in that background, yeah, you can become immune. Is that then the Christian's fault? No, that's your fault. I don't think you can blame the Christians or whatever culture they share that may or may not turn into cultural Christianity. Uh, at the same time, it can turn bad in the perception of some. Uh, and I think that's a reasonable conclusion. Uh, let me go back to my door example of this uh, This distantly derived idea from cultural Christianity uh, that because uh, women in some way are special and men should serve them in a way, then men should open doors for women. Or in other words, you know, those who are perceived as physically, generally physically stronger uh, should perform this outward act of service for someone who's associated with physical weakness or unique vulnerability, which is true. Now, if you grew up in a culturally Christian world or town or church or whatever, uh, when you knew that all the men were actually skeezy and yet they were going around opening doors for women and acting like they were the greatest knights in shining armor the world had ever seen, then yes, uh, that's going to be very bad stigma attached. The opening doors is now uh, paired up with total hypocrisy. You're not really trying to be chivalrous. You're not even really trying to be culturally Christian. You're just going along with the trends or maybe you're pursuing power in that spiritual community. And so you might grow up and then along comes some pundit who says, hey, this whole opening door for women thing is just a method of subjugation and oppression. <laughs> Down with that sort of thing. You can open your own darn doors because you are enough. Okay, maybe you are enough. In most circumstances, you can open the darn door and maybe the door is automatic and really you ought not make such a big fuss about it. But why then make such a big fuss about the original cultural Christianity derived idea of men opening doors for women? It is intrinsically a good thing before it turns bad. So I think we go back then to a whole archive of material at Lorehaven is that things created by God start off good. It is human idolatry that turns them bad. Whether it's the idea of a Christian flag or men opening doors for women or Bible verses printed at the bottoms of your paper cups at the fast food burger joint. Uh, all those things are good ideas. And I think it's healthy to have those in cultural. We'll explore that in the next chapter. But yeah, it can certainly be soured uh, if you associate these ideas with hypocrisy. Or if you're a Christian fiction reader, or you want to look for Christian-made stories or cultural works, and you see the cultural Christianity used as an excuse for quality. 
Uh, I don't have to make a book where the characters behave like human beings or the plot, the plot resolutions make sense. Uh, or it does something new with the genre while adhering to the expected genre conventions. You don't have to do all that stuff. All you need is drop in a little bit of cultural Christianity. You can say, let go and let God, uh, Jesus take the wheel, uh, just take a leap of faith. Uh, God helps those who helps themselves. <laughs> it's any, some of those little catchphrases that may not even be Christian. And before you know it, uh, your fiction has become dishonest. Uh, The story has been hurt, not helped by cultural Christianity, uh, if it's more culture and less Christianity. You know, I love that you mentioned Left Behind, because that was the first Christian movie I saw in that that pivotal year for my Christian walk, my freshman year of college. I I watched it, uh, as I've mentioned before, on a VHS cassette on a 13-inch TV VCR combo. And it, I was just totally hooked by it. So this was not, you know, Blu-ray on an 80-inch HD TV 4K. This was like the worst image quality you could think of. And look, we we can save our criticisms for that another time. But it just captivated me, Stephen, because it's about a pastor who does not get raptured, Pastor Bruce. And it hit me in that moment, like this is who I've been most of my life. I've been the good kid. Because I thought that's how I would get rewarded. And I'm just going along with the cultural Christianity around me. You know, the funny thing was, I think in middle school, like way before I even became a Christian, uh, my mom was a teacher and I got to know one of her coworkers. And for some reason, this coworker says to my mom in front of me, she says, I think your son's going to be a pastor one day. And I think back on that and I'm like, that's so weird. She would say that I was definitely not a Christian and I was not really living as a Christian. I, as I've shared a couple of times, I was more into paganism and, and occultism and mysticism. I was not into Christianity at all. Did not read my Bible except to read crazy stories in Revelation once in a while. I was a, a cultural Christian at most. And so that story of Bruce missing the rapture and then realizing what it actually meant to be a Christian that totally hooked me a year before that, right as I was graduating high school, I went to this thing called a baccalaureate. And so it was like a graduation ceremony, but it was like a Christian based thing. It wasn't officially part of the school and it was actually several schools that got Christian students together. I don't even know how, who put this together or how I got invited to it. I'll never forget the speech the guy gave where he said, according to the Bible, there are three types of people. There are the lost, the religious lost, and the saved. And he spent a lot of time on that middle section. Uh, you know, he talked about the lost, and it's all the things you could think, people just living openly hedonistic lifestyles. But when he spent time on the religious lost, man, I felt convicted. And I could see a lot of people around me. Like, you could feel the tension in the room as he talked about what it meant to be religiously lost. And of course he talked about the Pharisees that Jesus often addressed, but then he talked about the saved and it's like, okay, this really is the difference. It's the difference of knowing about Jesus and trying to copy him versus actually being saved. That identity of being religious lost, it's very comfortable to be religiously lost in the South, in in many parts of Texas and, and maybe not all the big cities and whatever, but quite a bit of the South is, is that unfortunately. So within the reference point of the continental United States, folks from the South see a lot more of the harm that cultural Christianity hath wrought. 
there's at least one uh, Christian pundit uh, author, uh, Twitter fellow, uh, whose uh, older tweet was resurfaced uh, in which he said that he believed cultural Christianity, I believe he used the phrase, was actually worse uh, than paganism. Uh, in his view, cultural Christianity, it seems, will send you to hell more quickly uh, than worshiping some pagan gods or something else that is not culturally Christian. I want to see where he's coming from, but I also think that such a view is very foolish and limited by someone's experience. Uh, ask someone from the Pacific Northwest or New England uh, or Japan, as you mentioned, areas that are barely influenced now by cultural Christianity, certainly in the public level. Uh, ask them how they're doing. Uh, ask them whether they could use uh, some of that uh, cheesy uh, Southern, you know, maybe not even Christian, but mostly culture. Like ask them whether they think they could benefit from that. You'll probably get some more positive answers than you would someone who's uh, maybe a little uh, limited uh, by his own experience and maybe has a, a bit of a church back home syndrome or some uh, bad things going on with uh, former religious employers. Zach, you mentioned, and, and I mentioned the Left Behind series, uh, I think a lot of people will associate that with cultural Christianity. And there was a while there, I don't know if you were there, Faithful Listener, but there was a while where you could just see Left Behind books everywhere. Like people yeah. were reading them in airports. Uh, cultural Christianity yeah. was having its day, and maybe its very last one. It was the fiction series that hit the New York Times bestseller list, often running neck and neck with the Harry Potter series. Uh, interestingly a lot of uh, surprising thematic overlaps between the two we'll get into in another episode but i i remember even to this day if you go to people's yard sales uh people do the united states that they just put out a bunch of stuff for sale if they're cleaning out the garage or something in the front yard uh you will see uh mostly christmas deck old christmas decorations at least in the south end or texas uh and you'll see cultural christian stuff uh, you'll see like purpose-driven life or you'll see um, uh, the faith of uh, the prayer of Jabez. Uh, you'll see a lot of those trends where just everybody was getting on board the bandwagon and buying a bunch of books. And you'll see a lot of left behind books. Used bookstores will see a lot of left behind books. And I think it, it can make it easy for uh, some very highfalutin evangelical pundits to say, well, that's just cultural Christianity. Except, Zach, you already talked about something we need to talk about in chapter three is that the left behind series, at least at first, overtly critiqued cultural Christianity and the hazards that result from that for people who think they're in the faith but are not. Uh, it takes discernment of popular culture to figure out the difference between these, which brings me to our third sponsor. Once again, I saw the opening. It's kind of rare in our sponsor slots, but I grabbed it for my own book, uh, The Pop Culture Parent. It's a nonfiction book about fiction. I'm the co-author along with uh, Dr. Jared Moore, who's a pastor, and Ted Turno, who teaches worldview studies. We take a different approach to popular culture. We're not just doing the third way thing where oh, popular culture is a little good, a little bad. Uh, popular culture is a messy mixture and it takes effort. It takes a biblical foundation to understand why we have these stories and songs, what they're for. Uh, how do we worship God while we enjoy or avoid these things and discern them? And for parents, especially, you can't just go from zero to 60 without the interim training we actually go by age and start teaching middle grade kids and teens and then young adults and then adults how to engage these stories for the glory of God. We have five simple questions starting at the very front of the book. It's a very short, readable book with lots of examples, lots of fun stuff in there, nonfiction book. I got to co-author this one, The Pop Culture Parent. You can get more links in our show notes for episode 160 or go to lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, I'd like to ask myself this question first off. Chapter three, how can cultural Christianity help our stories? 
sticking with the Left Behind series, we've already given a positive example. There were lots of people who read the Left Behind series, maybe as an expression of cultural Christianity, because Grandma and Aunt Barb and you know Uncle Dave and everybody were reading them, and the pastor at church said that it was a very biblical series, and it's probably going to happen tomorrow. Um, that point aside, people were enjoying this series and spreading them all over the place, and a lot of people would open this book and then read this story about a pastor. Shock, just absolutely shocking, who was left behind at the rapture. Why? He was a cultural Christian, Bruce Barnes. Uh, lots of other stories about that figure throughout the series. And you get the idea that it was either Tim LaHaye or Jerry Jenkins or both who really, you know, maybe preach, being a little preachy in there, but hey, it's a series about the end times, guys. It's kind of based in the Bible anyway. You get that they went in there wanting to disabuse people of that notion of that cultural Christianity can save you. It can't. And yet they're using a series that people associated with cultural Christianity later to share this idea. And so it's a little bit meta there. Uh, cultural Christianity can challenge itself at the best possible level. Uh, if we get a story, for example, uh, like uh, actually the movie um, uh, Jesus Revolution, uh, kind of a historical a biographical overview of the Jesus movement. There's a lot of cultural Christianity in that movie. And I love the movie that it celebrated all that was good about this culture, uh, the Jesus Revolution starting in the 60s, uh, the, or the Jesus People Movement. But it also critiqued some of the hazards of that culture, uh, the idea that people would just be getting on the bandwagon because it was cool or popular. I think the best kinds of Christian stories can benefit from the very cultural Christianity that is subject to critique. And we must keep in mind uh, a Latin phrase that I always use with discernment issues. It's abusus non tollet usum. Abuse of a thing, of a gift, whatever, does not disqualify proper use. And so that goes back to Mark 7 uh, in the related text, where, as you mentioned, uh, Zach, Jesus is schooling the Pharisees uh, that they can't just blame the culture for making them sin. They can't blame the food that they're eating or the drink that they're drinking for pulling sin into them. Jesus said, no, the sin doesn't come from your environment. It comes from the human heart and spills out. Uh, The whole rules against food and drinking and all that really aren't going to address that heart problem. And so the argument goes both ways. Uh, if you don't want places to open on Sunday, well, that's that's probably a good thing to encourage rest and the common good, but it's not going to do anything about the sin problem in your heart. Uh, but if you're mad about those Sunday laws uh, and really wish that all the cultural Christianity would just go away, well, then you too are just doing the same thing. Uh, you're a legalist. Uh, you're be now trying to outlaw these rules uh, because you got a chip on your shoulder about something. Well, same issue. Uh, that too is not going to send people uh, back to Jesus. It's the same issue either way. You know, what you've described there, the shift in a lot of our laws, a lot of our cultural norms, it's what several thinkers, including Aaron Wren, have, have described as we, we've moved from positive world to negative world. There was a period of time where it was neutral world in, bet- in between. And look, there's a lot to say about that. We're going to link to that in the show notes. But basically, we're in negative world now where our uh, political structures, cultural institutions, mass media, and just general attitudes of our country and maybe different in each region of our country are increasingly negative and hostile towards biblical Christianity. And um, there's this great quote by Neil Shinvey recently I want to highlight because this directly relates to what I'm going to say in a minute about Indiana Jones. But Neil says, people ask, why are solid evangelicals struggling with cultural issues? The short answer is because they think we're still in positive or neutral world. 
But a deeper answer is because our confessions themselves were written within Christendom. And he was quote tweeting a guy named uh, Tripp who said that the Westminster Confession of Faith is basically correct, but it was written in a culture that was largely Christian. So positive world in yes. this framework, uh, a right. culture that viewed Christianity as a positive influence and cultural Christianity as a uniform good. Right, right. So we're having a lot of trouble adjusting to this negative world, and we're even having trouble, you know, just forming basic theological statements about it. Like I, I keep looking for this from our cultural institutions within evangelicalism. Like, why isn't there a unified statement on X, Y, or Z it, cultural issue? Like, why are denominations, church leaders not putting out these statements that are so clearly biblical about these issues? Well, it's because we're we're living in a really different world than when these classic confessions of faith were written. And as he said, we think we're still living in positive and neutral world. And so that's why I want to talk about Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones was an excellent story involving cultural Christianity that was written during that shift from positive to neutral world. In the movie, Indiana Jones is not portrayed as a Christian. I think he mentions going to Catholic school or something, but his operating principle is archaeology and adventure and treasure hunting. The story is not about a journey of faith or anything related to his spiritual life. It's about finding the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because it belongs in a museum. <laughs> and also because the Nazis are trying to get it. And it's his knowledge of the Bible, though, that plays a crucial role. At the end of the movie, the Nazis think, oh, all we got to do is dress up, you know, as the Jewish priests and have the Uman and the Thurman and the, all the attire and all the elements and then... And then we can use the Ark of the Covenant for, you know, to give us power. Because they, they thought it's all about these external things. So it's the cultural end. Jewishness in that regard. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. And Indiana Jones realized uh, that's not going to work uh, because God is not going to be mocked. He knows your heart. He knows you're evil. So he, he figures out, he's like, they're going to open that Ark and they're all going to get wasted. They're all going to die. And so what does he tell uh, Marion? Close your eyes. Because he knew in the Bible that Moses was not allowed to look at God's glory. And when Moses asked to see God's glory, God says, no, you can't, no one can see me and live. So I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock. But also there's plenty of stories about the ark and people mishandling it and getting zapped uh, by an angel or by, or by God. And so Indiana Jones knew, and he knew enough about the Bible to know the proper attitude and handling of the ark. And he knew that he couldn't see God's glory and live. So he, they closed their eyes and they're the only ones that survived. So cultural Christianity not only saved Indiana Jones, it saved the world. <laughs> well, even while it was a critique of cultural Christianity, I'd forgotten that the Nazis, boo, by the way, Nazis bad. <laughs> uh, the N Nazis were trying to put on all the costumes and, you know, basically cosplaying Judaism. Uh, which is just an actual bad example of cultural appropriation there, uh, no matter what religion you are. Uh, I'm a Christian, and I would disagree with that. Yeah, you, you don't. You, that's not how that works with the Ark of, of the Covenant or, or anything else. So it seems at once a rebuke of a, a cultural faith uh, that's devoid of any heart sincerity, but also an affirmation of the character right. of Indiana Jones uh, before he was fighting aliens and time traveling and all this more secular sci-fi stuff. 
the lore of the old adventure serials would have been kind of this presumed cultural Judeo-Christian background. And Indiana Jones, following in that tradition of the adventure serials of the 40s, uh, sought to honor that uh, in a then modern uh, way for the, for the 80s blockbuster. I think that's a great example. Uh, there's some other great examples, too, in, in newer movies. Uh, Zach, you mentioned uh, Captain America before we started recording, who at least in the early version of him, Joss Whedon's uh, version, uh, and, and then going back to uh, even the first Avenger, like th- there's some cultural Christianity there. It's uh, probably the clearest in uh, Joss Whedon directed uh, the original Avengers movie, which, by the way, I want to feel old now. That movie's about to be 11 years old. Only 11, actually. Uh, but uh, the famous example is Captain America saying, uh, when someone tells him not to go confront Thor because these people are basically gods, and he says, there's only one god, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Okay, parts of Avengers, the first one, have not aged well. The cinematography is pedestrian. Uh, I mean, it's kind of directed by a TV director, so it makes sense. There's not a lot of vision there. But seeing the superheroes team up is still fun, and that figures for Cap's character is that he has inherited this cultural Christianity from the past. He's not going to arrive in the 21st century plus a decade uh, and then suddenly adopt uh, the other cultural expressions of faith uh, like he does later in Endgame when he hears someone say that he misses his boyfriend and Cap doesn't seem to have an issue with that at all. Uh, He seems to have become a man uh, of his time uh, rather than out of his time. Uh, I think it's healthy for a superhero to behave like that. Uh, Certainly jumping over into the DC universe you get great stories that have been influenced by cultural Christianity, or in the case of Superman, cultural Judaism. You know, the Christians keep trying to turn Superman into kind of this uh, Jesus character, as even Batman v Superman observed. Uh, But originally, he's more like a Moses character, because he was invented by a couple of Jewish fellows uh, who were obviously thinking about Moses being sent away from the doomed society and and tropes like that. Uh, It's not just cultural Christianity, but cultural Judaism that has done great things uh, for the foundations of our fantastical storytelling. Uh, If you get rid of that because you've got issues with the church back home or you don't want the place to close on Sundays, uh, then to be consistent, you'd also want to cut away the foundation underneath a lot of these really great secular stories that cultural Christianity has made better than they ought to be. Yeah, so I I mentioned um, Indiana Jones is that example from Positive World that Neil Shinvey's talking about. You mentioned Captain America, which is almost kinda, more in the, neutral in, world, the, at the end of Neutral World. Yeah. The second example I want to give is Mission Impossible, the 1995, I think, movie with Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. Okay, and so the was, OG 96, the action movie, the one yeah. where he dangles from the wires and does yes. the hacking. Okay. And I would say this is right in the middle of Neutral World because there's a Bible reference in there that is incidental to his character, but very important to the plot. But the Bible is, is not presented positively or negatively. It's just kind of a prop. In Indiana Jones, knowing the Bible was very important. And it wasn't just like quoting the Bible, but it was actually knowing the Bible pretty well. In fact, Andy Sheehan, one of our Lorehaven staff writers, just to go backwards for a second, he brought up this great screen cap someone had recently of the script for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And we'll put this in the show notes, but Harrison Ford wrote all these notes in the margins when they're talking about the Ark. And he says, wait, is India a believer? You know, where in the Bible does it say this? And just giving a lot of interesting insight because he knew that, well, Indiana Jones knew the Bible and he went to Catholic school or whatever it was. And so he, he would probably know things a little bit better than the screenwriter here, who's kind of assuming some things. 
So that was kind of more the positive world. In Mission Impossible, there's this scene where um, Ethan thinks back to his uh, his boss Jim saying that he was working on Job three fourteen, and Ethan says, "Wait a minute, does he mean Job three verse 14? And so he looks that up. He he found a Gideon Bible. So there's another cultural Christian thing: Gideon Bibles in every hotel room in all of America. And he finds this uh, Usenet group. This is like free Facebook, free <laughs> discussion board. You know, this is very early internet kind of stuff. I can just see the dancing gifts in front of yeah. my face right now. <laughs> all the little repeating backgrounds, that pale gray background at the GeoCities page. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so a very this, 90s reference. <laughs> so he finds this, uh, you know, Bible discussion Usenet group about the book of Job. And then there's a thread for chapter three and a thread chapter or verse 14. And you know, the verse isn't all that relevant to the plot. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Stephen, maybe you can pull that up there and, and quote it in a second. Uh, Job 3.14, you say? Yeah. The okay. point of the Bible verse was it really had nothing to do with what Jim and the others were planning. It wasn't like a secret code. It was uh, security through obscurity. So it was it was using that that homophone thing of Job and Job, right, to say, "Oh, Job three fourteen. It's actually Job. It's like we're going to meet on the corner of this building at this certain time. You know, it's like we're going to meet on this bulletin board under this chapter under this verse and plan our little evil plan and hide in plain sight. Basically, is what they were doing. So, did you? find the verse. Yeah. It just, it's in the middle of a sentence. I don't even see the context. It just says with Kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. So I've not seen that first mission impossible movie. Yeah. So I'm relying on your knowledge of that. Now that's fascinating. You get a super spy now who's demonstrating a, a level of at least some casual familiarity with the Bible. So he can hack computers. He can hold his breath for minutes on end. He can jump on helicopters. Uh, he can do an airdrop into a fancy, uh, Paris party, uh, and yet he also uh, understands rudimentary Bible. Yeah, and Ethan deduced from that verse that what Jim was trying to do was burn down the IMF, you know, to reduce it to ruins and then rebuild it in in some better kind of system. And so, because he figured that out, and because there was that Gideon Bible, you know, Ethan figured out that Jim was the mole, and he was able to save the IMF and and the knock list and all that. And so again, that was it was cultural Christianity in the mist. You know, no one would say Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise, was a Christian. I mean, first of all, Tom Cruise is a Scientologist, and he doesn't really play Christian characters. And he's again, his spiritual journey is not the point of that story. And there's many things you could say about his character, good and bad. But at least that acknowledgement that the the Bible is something interesting. And so what I think both Indiana Jones and, and Ethan Hunt do for Christianity is there's sort of like an endorsement of the Bible from a cool guy. <laughs> you know, it's like, Hey, Indiana Jones read his Bible. Do you read your Bible? Ethan Hunt, you know, understand the old Testament. Do you understand the old Testament? Oh, this is a bad youth pastor message. <laughs> and then we're back to how it can hurt, you know, cause then it just becomes sure. cringe. And then we're talking about a Christian cringe episode. That's a bad <laughs> form of cultural Christianity. That was our one with, uh, uh, with, with, with Kevin. Uh, oh yeah. McCreary. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's bad to crucify Iron Man. Okay. That's just not yeah, a good yeah. cultural Christian thing to do in the church, but it's healthy. It's healthy to have major characters normalize. Yeah. There's the word right. normalize a public expression of Christian faith. It's treating this as normal in public 
is a good thing. I'm not talking about laws or mandated stuff, but just the sort of casual acceptance. Oh yeah. Yes. And he, he goes to church. He believes in Jesus. There's a thing called the Bible. Uh, Jesus was a, a good religious leader at least. Uh, now I think that the difficulty there comes, for example, uh, if, if you're a little kid, and I thought about this earlier, when you're a little kid, all Christianity is cultural Christianity. You don't know any better. It, it's suffusing yeah. the air. Uh, you don't even know that you're a fish swimming around in the fishbowl. Uh, and then you discover the wider world outside, and then you start to resent uh, that water in the fishbowl a little bit. But I think that's just an inevitable uh, stage of growth there uh, as you discover, okay, there was this thing I grew up in. There were some issues with it. Uh, there was a lot of people who took it way too far. There was a lot of people who turned this uh, for legalism or license or whatever or hypocrisy. But then you go back and you realize, okay, but it, it started off good before the human corrupt soul got to it and turned it bad. Uh, just like everything else that God has made or other cultural tropes that people have come up with that honor God's word. Uh, it reminds me, Zach, of really our whole body of work here. I uh, was thinking about our last interview with Nova McBee, author of Calculated, uh, episode 159. A lot of her story that she shares in that episode uh, is an example of the positive influence of cultural Christianity. You know, when was she saved? You know, when did the Holy Spirit flip the switch from unsaved to saved? I don't know. That's his business. Uh, but she's walking the walk and talking the talk and making great stories that are proving really popular. And so are many, many Christian creators that we've interviewed uh, on this podcast and whose work we've featured uh, at Lorehaven. Uh, they could not have gotten to where they are without cultural Christianity. Do some of them want to write for an audience beyond cultural Christianity or evangelicals? Yes. Uh, but I can't think of any author with whom we've spoken who said, yeah, I, I just, I'm just a Christian. Uh, church had nothing to do with it. My family had nothing to do with it. Uh, the public reflections of Judeo-Christian morality or even the gospel and culture, that had nothing to do with it. Uh, in fact, I, I had to run all the way away from that stuff uh, so that I could discover Jesus again. I think you get some stories from pundits or people maybe trying to sell you a lifestyle somewhere uh, that approach this idea of people being saved or really discovering Jesus apart from cultural Christianity. Uh, but I think that they're defining that too narrowly. I think they just define that as the bad stuff. They're not thinking about basic love your neighbor ideas or Bible verses on the coffee mugs or some of the very good ways that cultural Christianity affects not, not just our laws and not just social conventions, but the stories that we enjoy uh, from the secular stories like uh, Indiana Jones or Mission Impossible uh, to the many great Christian works of fantasy and sci-fi and beyond uh, that we explore here. Yeah, Stephen, you hit on exactly the right note when you said that the, the best use of culture of Christianity in stories is simply normalizing it as a good or a healthy thing. Because how many stories have we seen in the last 10 or 20 years where the Christian character is always the bad character? In fact, Rain Wilson, you know, who played Dwight in The Office, he noticed this recently with the TV series The Last of Us. He said as soon as this Christian character came on screen, he knew instinctively the Christian was going to be a villain. And now as far oh, as I know, another Rain, Christian serial killer. Yeah. Right. And as far as I know, Rain Wilson is not a believer, but he has seen this trope played out time and time again. He realizes how bigoted, yes, how bigoted Hollywood screenwriters and producers are for continually putting this in movies 
when they do not treat other religious figures the same way. You know, a lot of Muslims complained about this in the early 2000s, that every show, if there was an Arab character, he was always a villain and a terrorist. Fox started responding to that. And in later seasons of 24, they started having positive and crucial good Muslim characters that were battling uh, the bad Muslim characters or surprise, there were no bad Muslim characters. They were scapegoats and it was some military industrial complex bad guy you know, from Virginia or something. And so, but, but Hollywood is continually cranking out very negative, very shallow uh, Christian characters. And so I, I think it's really crucial nowadays that we have more stories with just a side character who's a Christian and that's fine. Not, I don't mean like a Ned Flanders, like an annoying side character, but just a, a, just some light sprinkling of positive portrayal. Now, because we are in neutral or a negative world, this could be costly, okay? Because there, there are a lot of people that are very uh, hostile towards any public profession of faith, even from more conservative circles. So as we record this, just this past week, the big news that hit in the media landscape, at least, was that Tucker Carlson was fired from Fox News. And th- there were several factors that led up to that, but according to reporting from Vanity Fair, the, the final nail in the coffin was a speech that Tucker gave where in the middle of it, he, he sort of framed the political battles we're having as ultimately a spiritual battle. And he said, hey, just take 10 minutes out of your day to pray about what's going on. Uh, and according to reports, Rupert Murdoch really hated to hear that. He didn't like all the spiritual talk. He didn't want that to be the focus of Fox News. And so he cut him loose. And, and, and in fact, according to the same report, he ended his engagement uh, to whatever wife this is. I, I don't know. I can't keep track. I think it was Mambo number five. That, Maybe. Uh, yeah, probably. The, the uh, elder Murdoch was on at the time. Yeah. You know, th- this woman he was engaged to was a huge fan of Tucker and, and very much bought into this, you know, kind of spiritual lens that he saw things through. But this was too Christian even for conservative Fox News. So that it may be costly. To, to put these things in. I'm not going to sugarcoat it uh, because we are in a different landscape now. But going back to the Indiana Jones era, the positive world era, there was another movie at this time that normalized something in a very subtle way and had a huge impact. It was the movie E.T. And what was normalized in that? Reese's Pieces. <laughs> you know, uh, the, the kid in the movie, uh, Elliot, he, he leaves this trail of Reese's Pieces for ET to follow. And that's all they did uh, as far as that product placement goes. But you, you can find reports of this, but sales of Reese's Pieces soared after that. Uh, so just that subtle little drop of, of something in a movie can have a big impact. I don't think we need a lot of movies and TV shows and books where there's an explicit spiritual journey that happens. I, I think we do need stories like that, but I'm not saying we only need stories like that. I think we need stories where there is just a, a little nugget of Christian faith being portrayed in a positive way. Now I'll, um, I'll, I'll sharpen that a little bit, I hope, and then maybe tie this together uh, with, with the Carlson example. What he said was culturally Christian. He even sure. then laughed about that. Uh, yeah, I, think yeah. I saw the clip Absolutely. where he's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm from the dumb denomination. You know, I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. He was really self-effacing, at least in public. 
Um, what he said was a really milk toast spiritual rhetoric. Hey, we're in a yes. battle of good and evil. This is just evil. Uh, maybe say a prayer for 10 minutes. Like, okay, if I'm in a church where someone says that, or if I read a Christian book where someone says that, uh, I'm gone. Bad review, join another church. Uh, that's dumb. Uh, that's cultural Christianity. I came here for some real Christianity, you know, yeah, spas of the scriptures, give me Jesus. Yeah, not just cultural weak sauce stuff. But if I'm out in the world and I hear that, uh, you know, if that's being proclaimed at a cable news channel, genuinely, if it's uh, printed on somebody's, uh, you know, paper cup of the burger joint, then I will be more approving of that. If it's in a secular story, I'll be more approving of that. Uh, if it's the movie uh, Man of Steel or Batman v Superman, where there are examples, overt examples, very rare of cultural Christianity, because Clark Kent grew up in Kansas and people tend to be culturally Christian there. So if someone dies, everybody shows up at the farmhouse uh, for a potluck lunch uh, before you go out to the backyard and bury him in a field. Spoiler alert. Uh, if you're having an, a, a crisis of faith, you go to the church and you sit in front of a very overt stained glass window, kind of reenacting your Gethsemane moment. If you're Clark Kent, the hero, uh, culturally Christian stuff, put that in a Christian movie. I'm going to roll my eyes. I roll my eyes a little bit, even when it's in a DC superhero movie, but I appreciate the gesture. It normalizes Christianity and says, Hey, this is good. This is healthy. This is expected for you to see in this world. But if you're talking about Christian-made fiction, if you're talking about a local church activity, cultural Christianity is not going to cut it uh, and, in fact, can actually prove harmful. But out in the world, I think it's a net good. Well, in thinking about aspects of cultural Christianity and how we see that in movies and stories, you know, it can be easy to critique all this stuff and, and think about all the bad things, right? Like we, we talked about in, in sort of chapter two, just how it can lead to this sort of therapeutic moralism uh, or the prosperity gospel, or just an anti-supernatural viewpoint. And all of that's true. Like, look, cultural Christianity is is not the internal, as we've said, it's the external. But the external can reinforce the internal. The physical work sometimes can lead to the spiritual realities when done correctly. And I, <laughs> I don't want to say let go and let God, but I do want to say sometimes we just have to trust God working through these things. And we have to trust our audiences, you know, uh, of these stories to, we, we have to trust more so the Holy Spirit working through these things to bring about God's truth. And the, the parable that I think about a lot with this, Stephen, is the parable of the weeds or the wheat and the tares. So this is from Matthew 13. And I just want to go and read this because I think it's important to center ourselves in biblical truth, as we say on this podcast. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So I have often heard this parable applied to the problems of cultural Christianity in the church, that, that there's, there can be this temptation to try to push out the fake Christians, you know, the pseudo-Christians, the pretenders, the hypocrites. 
but the problem is if you if you do that and you put these kind of harsh rules into place within the church or even within christian literature you know this is a real christian that's not a real christian um you can end up pushing away the real christians too you you can end up harming the wheat just trying to get rid of the weeds and so i i think there's a lot of wisdom in this parable that you know, we have to kind of accept the good with the bad sometimes with Christian, with Christian culture because, hey, uh, it's that way with the church. <laughs> it's that way with people. Now, certainly, if you're going to have a membership requirements of a church, yeah, you want to make sure your members, and particularly your leaders, your elders of a church, are actually born-again believers. I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing you want to think about with Pastor Bruce, right? And left behind, like, well, how in the world did that guy get all the way up to the office of pastor? of that church if he's not really a believer. Well, okay. Jesus said, again, that's going to happen. In Matthew 7, he talks about people saying, hey, look, we ate and drank with you. We even did miracles in your name. And he's, he's going to say, I never knew you. So we know it's going to happen. We know there are going to be the religious lost who are you know, very unpleasantly surprised at Judgment Day. But the thing is, we, we, can't, we can't discern that now. All we can do is continue growing the wheat the best we can. Meanwhile, we're going to attempt sorting the wheat from the tares in Christian-made fantastical fiction. That's the purpose of Lorehaven, and we've been super busy at lorehaven.com. Got a few updates for you for the mission update. First off, starting May 1st, uh, we start our new book quest in the Lorehaven Guild. It's being led by Elijah David through a fantasy that's appropriate for kids ages 12 and up. It's a novel by S.D. Smith with assist from J.C. Smith called Jack Zulu and the Waylander's Key. Uh, What a great cover. It looks like a comic book there, Uh, but it's a book uh, for upper middle grade or young YA readers. Elijah is going to lead that in the Lorehaven Guild, which is our Discord community. You can get there by exclusive invitation, only by subscribing to updates at lorehaven.com. Speaking of that website, uh, we're rolling out some improvements. I've been working on some stuff behind the scenes that uh, really help uh, families uh, to find the types of resources that they need most. Uh, We've had a lot more material specifically for parents over the last month or so, and it's proved very popular, and it just makes sense to try to sort uh, the many years of content we have at Lorehaven uh, according to reader interest. Uh, So middle grade, for example, or teens and YA, uh, or readers who are looking for more grown-up stories. Uh, You'll be able to find that a lot more easily at lorehaven.com. We'll announce the date uh, for that rollout in due time. We've also got a new section on the site we're putting together. Uh, It's kind of a slow rollout already. Uh, We're going to put all the movie reviews type stuff, like some of the stuff we've been doing in this episode, Finding that cultural Christianity or common grace in popular culture is still a special interest that we have, but if you're not careful, it can take over our main interest in Christian-made fantasy and sci-fi, but people still want to talk about Mandalorian or Picard. I mean, I want to talk about Picard. I also want to talk about DC if they get their act together. Uh, All that stuff is going to be now at lorehaven.com in a section called On Screen. At least that's the working title right now. I like to keep it, but we're a team. We'll figure that out. You can find my take on Star Trek Picard who that resists alien assimilation to boldly celebrate heroes and family. Kind of a quick review there. Uh, Josiah DeGraff uh, followed up uh, with another review. Brilliant acting elevates common tropes that possess nefarious. So a little bit of cultural Christianity there in a Christian made horror movie about a guy on death row who's about to be executed, but he claims he's possessed by demon. And what do you know? 
because it's a Christian made horror movie. He's right. Uh, Josiah found a lot to like about that movie, uh, even though there was some stuff he didn't appreciate as much. He said the one actor just did an amazing performance. We also got all the resources you need about Calculated by Nova McBee. Not only did we do our last uh, Fantastical Truth episode interview with her, but we reviewed the book uh, last Friday, Calculated, uh, soon to be a major motion picture. Pray for the development there. See that they can get all four books uh, made into movies. That would be fantastic. You can get all those updates at lorehaven.com. Just subscribe. The little box, new box pops up at the bottom. You can choose which updates you receive. And uh, hopefully our overzealous uh, email provider has been reined in just a little bit. It was sending out some hollow emails there for a bit. Oh, just one other minor programming note. I think I mentioned a few episodes ago on an interview with Stephen James that I was going to Pigeon Forge. Uh, Fact checked, proved false. Uh, I could not make that work uh, given my travel limitations and a lot of other commitments among them. uh, The website uh, work that I've been doing and some other projects. uh, It just didn't end up uh, working out in this case. But uh, all support uh, for Scott and Rebecca P. Minor running the Realm Makers Bookstore in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. That's later this week as this episode releases at the Lecompte Center. I think that's how you say it. It's the Teach Them Diligently conference. Just look for, if you're anywhere in that area, look for the giant Realm Makers booth. They're going to have all kinds of special guests there, uh, including uh, Stephen James, uh, who we just had on the podcast. And hopefully, Lord willing, uh, I will get to join the Realm Makers bookstore to represent Lorehaven and maybe sell some pop culture parent copies uh, at the uh, conference, the FPEA conference in late May uh, in Orlando. There's a comment uh, in response to Tisha Messing's article, How to Disciple Your Kids with Dangerous Books. Uh, I didn't see this comment. It was posted a couple of weeks ago, but it was a really good one from a reader named Joanne Degas Samide. hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Uh, she said, reading this thread made me feel so nostalgic. I loved reading to and with my five kids when we homeschooled. We used Sunlight Curriculum, which had a great deal of fabulous reading choices. My youngest is 20 and my oldest is 35, and they all talk about the days of reading aloud and what we learned. Keep it up, folks. You are truly doing the Lord's work. Uh, that's really encouraging. And uh, another reminder to me that there's so much need still for family uh, resources to uh, explore these kinds of books, uh, the dystopian books, uh, other stuff that homeschooled teens are absolutely loving, uh, even some books that may be considered dangerous. I think Tisha had a really great take on that, and we're hoping to have uh, more articles exploring all angles the dangers and the benefits uh, of a fantastical books, uh, particularly for teens and YA, because they're so popular. I want to highlight two comments that I saw on social media about this article. Andy Sheehan wrote, Christians who feel media malaise can find buried treasure in older books. And because certainly we're talking about the buried treasure that Indiana Jones uh, went to find. And this was from RM Archer. So at Risa Archer on Twitter. And she shared uh, Andy's article and said, though this topic is nothing new to me, I personally found this Lorehaven article timely to share, given my recent disappointment with the Dungeons and Dragons movie and with the season two finale of The Mandalorian. Uh, So that's very interesting. Yeah, I've kind of given up on The Mandalorian and I haven't even tried Dungeons and Dragons, uh, although I've seen some good reviews of it, but I very much feel the same impulse that uh, that Risa mentions that Andy wrote about and a comment that someone recently left on the article itself. This is from Andreas who said, good article. I feel the same way in recent years. I've been going back to the classics more and more Jane Austen and Jules Verne in particular are just fun to read. I personally found your first point particularly challenging. 
When I read The Inklings by Humphrey Carpenter a while back, all I could think to myself was, I could never be friends with Charles Williams. But you're right. In such cases, it can be helpful to put aside one's theological beliefs to discover literary treasures. End quote. And it's, I, I pulled this comment up, Stephen, because he mentions um, Jules Verne. I went to a bookstore recently, used bookstore, and found the complete works, I believe, of Jules Verne. There's about four or five different books, all condensed in this one uh, really nice hardback copy. And it was only $4. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I, I think I read Around the Earth and uh, Around the World or whatever in 80 Days, the, the balloon adventure story like, I don't know, middle school, like a long time ago. Pro tip, there's no balloon in the original book. None. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we'll see, I don't movie. even remember. Yeah, but everyone <laughs> associates just it saw with the balloon. Movie. Yeah, That's yeah. Funny. it was the one uh, seemingly steampunk tech that did not appear in the book, but only appears in the movies. Interesting. Yeah. But yeah, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Middle of the Earth. I, so I don't stuff. think I've, I never read those. Uh, of course, there's lots of film adaptations. Well, and, speaking of cultural Christianity, uh, that's all over. Uh, and then you've got sure. Jules Verne uh, helping to create the genre of science fiction. Like he had more right. cultural Christianity and H.G. Wells did it as well, but H.G. Uh, Wells was a little bit more overtly humanist. So it's interesting, yeah. uh, different directions that they took. And C.S. Lewis inserts Jules Verne as sort of a foil in that hideous strength as uh, like the figurehead leader of this uh, of the NICE. And so I, I don't know that he was a Christian. I kind of get from Lewis that he wasn't. Yeah. Uh, cultural Lu- Christian at best, yeah. I think. Yeah. Right. And so, well, there again, we've, we've got works of literature by cultural Christians. You know, what, what buried treasure can we find there? Well, I'm looking to find out because yeah, this is one of the godfathers of science fiction and it's influenced everything after it. So I think it's important for that reason too, to kind of look at where we've come from because we can get obsessed where just where everything is right now. But if you are a dear listener, want to give us some feedback on cultural Christianity, please send us a note to podcast at lorehaven.com or comment on social media on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Next on fantastical truth. Well, we just have to make it complicated. Do we believe in canceling all the streaming services because there's nothing good on TV no more and all the movies have gone downhill and you only need to read old books or Christian books? Well, now along comes at least one franchise uh, to challenge that. Uh, We've explored, though, how big franchises keep failing their fans. More recently, we've delved into how some fiction just can't stop deconstructing its own heroes and lore. That is frankly discouraging. Still, we're not without hope because we know that some destroyed franchise worlds really can be restored. There's at least one I'm thinking of right now. I love Star Trek Picard, which celebrated the old while anticipating the new. Lots of cultural Christianity doing the heavy lifting there in themes of family and friendship. But for a while, Star Trek seemed to be dead. Will it come back? And if we've already felt grief over the seeming death of a story, how can we celebrate a story that seems to be coming back to life? Meanwhile, whether or not you have a background in cultural Christianity, maybe you view the thing more negatively, maybe you associate it with hypocrisy or legalism or even abuse, I would encourage us to see these good ideas for the original good that they are. Uh, It is not the idea of public witness in culture that is bad. It is what people are doing with that. And yeah, that can make some pretty cringe or even unhelpful or heretical stories, but there are also many good ways uh, that reflecting the gospel or Christian morality in the world and help our neighbors and help us and even help our stories to be better. That's helpful to keep in mind as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth.